What an enormous blessing that we can all be together this afternoon. Grateful to see so many familiar faces and grateful to see so many visiting with us today. Some of our own who are usually here are not with us today, but we've more than made up for it with our visitors. We're really encouraged to have you with us today. It's our intention to edify you and build you up according to God's word. So we pray that you will open your Bibles in Psalm 1. We will be reading from this psalm during the the lesson today. We'll be studying from here. And we're just anxious uh, and so grateful to have you with us. For those who are online as well, we're thankful for your presence with us as well. We pray that this will be a blessing to you. God has designed it this way. He's made it so that we come together on the first of the week. And what a great blessing that he's done this for us. We're familiar with the ending of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, sort of an epilogue where he says, those who hear the words that I've spoken and do them, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man who built his house on the rock. But the one who hears them and doesn't do them is like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, it destroys that house that was built on the sand, and yet the one built on the rock remains firm. Sort of an epilogue after his teaching to say, take what I've, what I've said and practice it. What we get in the Psalms is sort of a prologue in Psalm, the first Psalm here that sort of does the same thing with the rest of the book of the Psalms. Those of us who are members here are working through our reading plan together, and we've just finished a huge section of reading through the Psalms. So I thought it would be fitting for us to look at this prologue sort of as an epilogue to our reading through the Psalms. To remember what we've been hearing, it is so impressive to me. The Psalms is one of the books that I've been weaker in uh, over the years. I've needed to go back and study, and I've had a lot of extra exposure to the Psalms recently, both through this reading and our daily readings, through some other studies I'm doing on my own and with some other folks. And I've just been really impressed with the beauty of God's revelation of his own heart to us through the heart of David and others as they revealed these psalms to us. And there's so much information and so much help, practical help in the psalms, that I think it's interesting for us to have a look here at this first psalm. And think about the way of the righteous as it's planted out before us here. And it begins this psalm with happy is the man or blessed is the man. And he ends it with this concept of God knowing this man's way or Uh, watching over the way of this man who is blessed. And so it begins and ends with this blessing of God on the one who will do the things that the psalmist will be talking about both here and all through God's word and all through the psalms as we read them together. Well, blessed is the man who first does not do some things. And we'll see in verse 1, there are several things he doesn't do. He doesn't walk in ungodly counsel. He doesn't stand in sinful paths, and he doesn't sit in scornful seats. There's a pattern of action, or perhaps of inaction here. It begins with this walking among the ungodly, but it leads to a sort of taking my time and standing around with these ungodly and sinful people. Ungodly is kind of generic. Just don't think about the things of God. Sinful then becomes a little more active. Not only am I not thinking about the things of God, but I'm doing things that are against him. And finally... The one who's sitting in the scornful seats is actively berating those who try to do what's right. And so there is this change of heart and attitude that comes. I think we get a perfect example of that when we look at uh, at Genesis, when we look at the story of Lot. And it's amazing as we see him going out toward Sodom. We're not going to read all of the, the text there about him. But in Genesis 13, verses 10 through 13, you see the account of what happens with Lot. Genesis 13, beginning at verse 10. Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, 
like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent, pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. We look also at what Peter has to say about Lot in 2 Peter chapter 2. And then we can kind of join some of these concepts together and see how Lot epitomizes what we see in Psalm 1 in the negative sense. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of God being able to deliver those who are righteous from the midst of those who are going to be destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah is a perfect example of that. It says, God was able to deliver righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Well, what was Lot doing? He lifted up his eyes and looked and saw this beautiful plain out there. He saw how fertile the land looked. So he began to pitch his tent. He began to walk in the direction of Sodom. And he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. In 2 Peter chapter 2, says he was dwelling among them. He had begun to stand there. In fact, we're told later in Genesis 19, when the event of Sodom and Gomorrah happens, that Lot is sitting in the gates of Sodom. He's sought after for his wisdom. He's one of the judges, perhaps, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's sitting there. So we actually see this movement that this psalm presents in the life of Lot as he's pitching his tent, as he's walking in the direction of Sodom. And then he begins to stand with them and dwell among them until finally he's sitting in the gates and he's giving his voice among them. But it says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8 that he tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing those things that they were doing. Yet, yet he stayed among them. This is where he had chosen to make his livelihood. I want us to consider a bit about that. As we walk, it's going to lead to a need to rest and stand a bit as we stand, eventually we're going to sit. And so where we choose to walk is going to end up pointing us where we're going to be. And this word scorner here, this scornful word, I appreciated Luke's reading, has this word of mocker. Uh, the definition, one of the definitions of this word scornful is someone who is a mocker. But the other definition, and it's valid, is an interpreter. It's one who analyzes what he's seen and then makes his judgment about it. And that's what we see Lot doing as he's sitting in the gates of Sodom. He's an interpreter of things. Remember, 2 Peter says he was tormenting his soul as he's interpreting these things. He's seeing that the things are not good. Yet we're going to see that even though he was able to recognize that the culture around him was not good, it tormented him, it influenced him for evil as well. We'll see that in his actions in just a moment. In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 8, when the men from that city began to beat at the door of Lot, to try to get to the angels so they could abuse them. Lot offered up his own daughters, his virgin daughters, as a righteous alternative. What, what kind of thinking is that? What kind of an offer is Lot making? He says, don't do this wicked thing, man. Don't come in against these who have harbored here in my home. Here, take my virgin daughters instead. Do with them as you please. That's a righteous solution? Neither one nor the other was righteous. Neither one nor the other was the right thing to do. And yet Lot, because he had tormented his soul among these people, because he had interpreted things through the lens of the culture he was living in, weighed out the two options and said, here's a viable one. 
that's not viable. How often does it come to us in that way? As we're talking with our friends, as we're talking with our families, we're talking with those who don't see things through the lens of God's word, is it not presented? There's only two possibilities. And both of them are horrible in God's eyes. And yet we sort of begin to sympathize and think, well, yeah, this is not as bad as this one, so this must be okay. What if they're both evil? What if there is no positive alternative in the two that we're offered? Can we not say, this is not the Lord's will? I won't participate in either of these? It's what we ought to say. But I want to suggest to you that we're so mind-numbed by our culture, because we've chosen to allow our culture to be our counselor, that we end up seceding where we ought not. Lot's ability properly to interpret made him into a mocker of God's will. It was hampered by the counsel and by the path that he had followed. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, speaks of a principle. We use it in a positive way, in the right way, I believe, in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Now, Paul defines what ought we to be hearing. If we want to have faith in good and righteous things, then we ought to be hearing the word of God. But God has made us so that our faith comes by hearing. And so what we hear will build our faith. The atheist chooses to listen to atheist doctrine. The denominationalist chooses to listen to denominational doctrine. The Christian should be choosing to listen to Christ. But what happens is sometimes we unconsciously make choices to listen to other counselors. So first off, going back in Psalm 1, we see what he doesn't do, what he ought not do. Don't walk in the ungodly counsel. We would say, oh, never. I would never walk in ungodly counsel. Why would I want to do that? I'm a Christian. Don't stand in sinful paths. I would never do that. But perhaps we find ourselves doing that. Don't sit in scornful seats. Instead of that, choose. Don't be unconscious. Choose to do what is right. Delight in. Meditate in God's law. One of the things that's been so impressive to me as we've been going through the book of Psalms is how often David himself specifically will say, I love your law, O God. Read Psalm 119. His law, his testimonies, his word, his judgments. There's so many different ways that David describes, so many different words. Each of those couplets mentions the word of God. Each one of those couplets, all through 119, mentions the word of God in some positive way. When you really love something, you can describe it in the best possible language. How many th ways can you describe that you love your wife? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That's a, that's a concept we understand, isn't it? And so David loves the law of God and wrote the largest chapter in the Bible about the word of God because he just found so many ways to describe it. There's an old saying that the Eskimos have 40 words for snow. I guess they would. Something you're familiar with and something that you have this around you always, you can speak of it in various ways. What does it say of us if we struggle to be able to speak about the Word of God? Is it something we love? Is it something we're spending a lot of time meditating on? We ought to because we will meditate on something. We will be listening to something. We'll be influenced by something. And if it's not the Word of God, then we're going to end up walking, standing, and sitting where we ought not to be. The delight is in God's law. And as I was saying, it's amazing to me how David says this always. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what God intended. This is how the law ends up in your heart because you delight in it, because you love it. 
It's not just something, well, that's the truth, so it's just going to be over there. I'm going to leave it on my shelf, so if anybody comes, I can say, here's the truth. <laughs> the truth becomes a part of you if this happens. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isn't that interesting? The first thing is, hear, <laughs> listen, understand who God is, and if you know who God is, your desire will be for him. You can't help but desire him if you know who he is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When David wrote Psalm 119, and he's talking about God's law, He's probably talking about the part of the Bible you don't like to read. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Yeah, Genesis and Exodus are pretty cool, but those other books? Who can stand just reading through those? I tell you what, if you love the Lord, and you begin to see how much He loves you by reading through Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, those three books, you see His love for you. You see His holiness and His desire for your holiness so that He can have fellowship with you. And you'll begin to be like David and you'll read through Leviticus and think, I just love God. Look at how much he loves me. And you'll do that with other books of the Bible as well. David didn't have some of the cooler books that we like to read. He didn't have all those prophetic books that had that great imagery. He didn't have that. He didn't have the New Testament, which you know the book of Acts reads like a novel. You could just read through that. David didn't have that. He's got the law of God. <laughs> the stuff that we say, do I have to read that again? <laughs> Do I get to read that again? <laughs> you do these because you love God. When you sit, walk, lie down, rise up, doesn't matter when and where, you're thinking about the Word of God because you love Him. <laughs> if someone said to me, were you thinking about your wife today while you were sitting at home? No, why would I do that? <laughs> She's at home with me. If I'm sitting there, I'm not going to be thinking about her. When you're walking around, you're thinking about your wife. Why would I do that? I, I can probably see her when I go home. Of course I am. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> And so when she's not with me and I'm out doing something, I'm thinking about, what would it be like if she were here? What would she think about this thing that I've come across? We do that when we love someone. Do we think about God? What would he desire of me in this situation? What does his word say about this conversation I'm having, this thing I'm finding my enjoyment in? What does his word say about that? Do I love the Lord enough to be thinking of him when I'm sitting? When I'm walking, when I'm lying down, and when I'm rising up, I ought to. <laughs> because he ought to be my counselor in all of those areas of my life. It's interesting how, like I said, Psalm 119 is just such beautiful language. Um, what David says about this meditating on God's law, I confess, I haven't got to this point yet. But I want you to think about David's meditation here and how beautiful this is. And I want to get here. I see it in David and I long for it. And there are times when I find myself doing this and I'm so enriched by it. But look what David says. Oh, how I love your law. Psalm 119, verse 97. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. 
I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. <laughs> it's amazing how practical what David is saying here is. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. <laughs> the ancients have taught a lot, but if I just kind of hear it and let it go by, I might have a great book knowledge, but if I'm not doing it, I have no practical knowledge. I don't know more than they do. But he says, I do here because I have kept your precepts. I know more than the ancients. I know what they learned, and then by practicing that, I've learned more. Christianity, the service of God, is a practical religion. It is not theoretical. And you will not understand it if all you're doing is kind of reading over and saying, well, isn't that pretty? <laughs> it's when you begin to practice it that you'll start to understand exactly what God's talking about. I'd like to ask you for a moment as we think about this section, who are your counselors? <laughs> I have to ask myself this often. If faith comes by hearing, what am I hearing? <laughs> who are my counselors really? If you come to worship, uh, if you come to the Bible study before worship at, at one o'clock on Sunday, you get roughly an hour of God's word being your counselor for that time. Then if you stick around for worship, it's about an hour and a half that we'll be here. So you add that with the first one, you get about two and a half total hours. And then if you come on Tuesdays at 7.30, you get about another hour. Now there's some time in between where there's downtime, there's singing, but all the instruction of the Lord together. If you come to all of the offered times that we're studying together here, but that's all that you're doing, that's three and a half hours a week where you can say that the Bible is being your counselor. And I pray that's not all you're doing. I'm going on the minimum here just to show if that's all you're doing, how that compares to some other things. <laughs> now, some are coming to all of those. It's great. Prayerfully, many others are also studying on their own and doing involved, involved in other things. There are other opportunities. But who is your counselor? <laughs> Three and a half hours if you're just coming here. There's a lot of other people vying to be your counselors out there. News organizations, scrolling through Facebook, everybody's telling you what their counsel is. Here's what you ought to do about this. Here's what I think. Look what I had today. All of that is cultural counsel coming into you, telling you what you ought to think about food, about diets, about government, about the poor, about whatever the situation is. For some of us, our counselors as we were growing up, and some now, is the school system, the school board. Whatever they determine that we need to learn, they're counseling us eight hours a day with what they want us to learn. If you're parents of children who are in school, consider that. They're being counseled for eight hours when you don't know exactly what they're being told. And you're going to have to make sure that their counselor is God, that they'll be able to deal with that. We're in a university situation. We're being counseled. As we're watching the news, they don't give you straight news anymore. We're being counseled. Here's what you ought to think about this. Here's why this was bad. As we're going through Facebook or whatever it is, we have counselors coming in. And I want to suggest to you that it's more than we suspect. If you only give 30 minutes a day to any one of these, and I suspect, looking at myself, it's more than 30 minutes a day when I start to combine all of these. 30 minutes a day is three and a half hours of their counsel at 30 minutes a day. Compared to the three and a half hours of counsel that I'm getting if I'm only coming to the 
Bible studies that the congregation here offers in, in togetherness. That's not very much, considering how much I'm getting. Now, that's just stuff that I may turn on consciously and allow to be my counselor from while I'm thinking they're not counseling me, but they are. While I'm at work, there's people sitting around me that are counseling me on the culture, on their ideas, on their beliefs. I have an opportunity also to counsel, and I'd better be counseling with this. That's what I ought to be showing. My culture ought to be Christ. The things I talk about ought to be Christ. But who are your counselors, really? Consider that just for your own life. I'm not going to ask you to hand in to me how many hours you spend on these things. But think about those. It frightens me when I think about it for myself. Who are really our counselors? And if we sit in that council, soon we'll be standing for what they're counseling. Soon we'll start thinking like they think because they're teaching us and transforming our minds. This renewing of our minds happens as we listen. If we listen to the word of God, that'll renew us one way. If we listen to the word of the world, that'll renew us another way. We'll stand for it. We'll walk in it. We'll be just like righteous Lot. Well, that seems like such a misnomer for him, seeing what he did. God spared him. There was something in Lot that was righteous. He was certainly different from the rest of his generation there. But he had been so tainted by the counsel he was receiving in Sodom and Gomorrah, that he was acting more like they were. And it cost him his family. So we see first what he doesn't do, what the righteous man doesn't do. He's blessed because he doesn't walk, stand, and sit with the ungodly, because he does delight in meditating God's law. And so he becomes like something. There's a transformation that takes place. He becomes like a tree, <laughs> And the idea is perhaps like the tree that I've shown here, a willow. It's planted up by the waters that just receives this constant water from the rivers. I think that's interesting that the description we have of Eden begins with rivers and fruitful trees. The description we get later in the book of Revelation is a river flowing out from the throne and the tree of life and the fruit that's there for the healing of the nations because it emanates from God as the source and as the fountain of all that's good. And so the man that meditates on the law of God becomes like this fruitful tree. Galatians says he would bear the fruit of the Spirit because he's allowing the Spirit to speak to him. And those waters of life are flowing through him and bringing life to others who are listening as well. And so in the psalm, he's fruitful, he won't wither, he prospers in all that he does. Now, he's prospering in all that he does because he's serving God. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be any problems. It doesn't mean there's not going to be difficulties. But his prosperity in spiritual matters will be evident because the Lord knows his way. The fruitful tree that won't wither and prospers is a, coming back to that idea of the happy and blessed man. That's what God is getting at is the blessing. It's spiritual. So often we want to think of, well, it's got to be physical or I don't understand it as a blessing. Our spiritual blessings are the richest ones we have. Those are the ones that God has promised. The physical blessing he hasn't promised. It's often a result, but the spiritual blessing he has. And that's what makes us blessed before God. But what about the ungodly? Now, we've looked at what the godly does and doesn't do and what he becomes like. What about the ungodly? The ungodly is not like the righteous. We begin looking at what he's not like. This is going to be... Uh, a, a chiasm, it's called, where you work backwards from the way that the, the psalm was written. So the ungodly is not like 
the righteous. Rather, he's like chaff. He's like the part of the straw that's left over that blows away. When you're taking out the seed and the useful part of the plant, whatever's left over that dries up and withers is just blown away by the wind. There's no substance. While the tree is firmly rooted and being watered, the chaff is dried up and blows away. It's a complete opposite. Think about John's, uh, John the Baptist's exhortation in Matthew chapter 3. When he's telling people to repent, because the unrepentant, those are the ones who will be like the chaff. Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, he says. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then he explains that. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This chaff doesn't just blow away. It's blown into the furnace where God's judgment is. This chaff is useless. God has produced everything to be useful and good, but what doesn't produce is cast away into the furnace. He's not like the righteous, and therefore he will not be able to stand. The thing that the righteous did when he took a stand was stand for what is good. But the unrighteous will not be able to, the ungodly. Because he stood in ungodliness, he will not be able to stand in the congregation of the just, the congregation of the righteous there in verse 5. When judgment comes, that's when he realizes what chaff he is. Because he would not stand for truth, he cannot stand at the judgment. He cannot stand in the congregation of the righteous. He won't be able to assemble with the saints, which may be his desire at this point when it's too late. He will not be able to withstand in the day of God's judgment. The point is, what we do right now, or what we choose not to do right now, determines our destiny. It determines what we'll be able to do or not do further along. In this psalm, choosing to do right right now will allow you to do what is righteous later. In this psalm, choosing not to do right right now will make it so that you're unable to determine how to do what is righteous later. And that's exactly what God's word tells us. Jesus said, he who hears my word and does them, his house will stand. He who hears my word and turns away and does not do it, his house will come to ruin. It's a practical use of God's word. It's not just enough to know it. His word transforms us as we obey. Romans chapter 12, transformed by the renewing of our mind. This metamorphosis that happens on the day when we need to take flight as a butterfly. We need to have those wings. And if we haven't been practicing what his word says, we're still just the fat old caterpillar that can't get off the ground. We need to be paying attention and practicing what he says. In the end, therefore, he perishes. <laughs> And there's a comparison here of what he does not do, he does not live. Perishing means his life is taken away. The bottom line of all of the instruction of the Psalms, it is just amazing when you read through, the bottom line is life and death. Why did David extol the beauty of God's word? Because God's word, as beauty as it sounds, as beautiful as it sounds, what it does is even more beautiful. It changes us into somebody completely different. It takes us from the world and prepares us for the world where God is, the spiritual realm. Because his word is spirit and his word is life. 
And as we embrace it, and as we live by it, it makes us so different. The truth is, as all the Psalms will point out, and as Psalm 1 begins, as it's preparing us for this reading of all the Psalms, is it's only God's way that leads to life. There are so many counselors out there. They all think they've got it figured out, but the most they have is the knowledge of their generation and perhaps the generation before. God's generational knowledge is boundless. He prepared the plan before the world was even made, and he revealed it piece by piece, generation after generation. Until today where we stand, we've got the whole puzzle neatly fit together. We can see it all so clearly. Even what the apostles couldn't see, we see. (laughs) Because they couldn't see what was going to happen with the Christ. And already they confessed their love and their devotion to him. When we've seen all that he brought and all that he's done, and we miss it, we've chosen to listen to counsel that's ungodly counsel. As you analyze your life, think about the two people in this psalm. (laughs) There's the blessed, godly, righteous person, and there is the condemned, ungodly, unrighteous person. The psalmist has written this psalm (laughs) Because he wants us to choose what is right and what's good. Ultimately, God has written this psalm. His desire is for you. His desire is urging you to the way of the righteous. As he urged the Jews. As he urged Adam and Eve. As he urged Noah and Abraham. He urges us all to listen to his word. To take it to our heart. And to allow it to transform our lives. That we can be all that he wants us to be. Where do you stand today before God? Who are your counselors? What have you been listening to? Is it the world? Or are you earnestly listening to God and desiring to change what your life is to what he wants it to become? His desire for you is so much more than your own desire and so much better. If we can help you today to make the decision to follow God and follow the path of righteousness, we want to help you do that. If you're not a Christian and you want to come forward confessing your sin, repenting of it and being baptized to have those sins washed away. We want to help you do that. If you need to know more about that, we'd love to study more with you. If you are a Christian, but you've been listening to the wrong counselors, and you find yourself walking, standing, and sitting in the paths of the ungodly, we want to help you out of that. God's word and his will can do that for you. It has that power to transform us all. If we can help you in any way, please make that desire known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.